very blessed Sunday morning to one and all. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord? If you are, let's just wave to one another. Welcome to the house of the Lord and welcome to this 7.30 a.m. service. To those of you worshipping with us online, may the Lord bless you and keep you. These are very challenging times. I urge you to mask up if you need to. Stay safe and stay well uh, in our Lord. And the pastors had a wonderful retreat. Thank you for praying for us. We missed all of you and we are back. And indeed, it was a great time, even as we gathered with pastors from three conferences, um, TRAC, CAC, and ETAC, as we fellowship, as we listen to God's Word together. And so, today we're going to preach on something which is rather interesting but necessary. And before I do that, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness to us. Grant us your grace and mercy to receive your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. For, O Lord, you are our rock. You are our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. By now, you must have heard these questions. Oh, what's wrong with sex before marriage? Everyone's doing it. What do you do? If your daughter comes to you and says, oh, I want to be a lesbian. What do you do if your son comes to you and says, oh, I feel I should be a woman. Dad, I should be a woman. Or your colleagues invite you to the pink dog event. And you are very uncomfortable and they say, are you homophobic? Why are you not coming along with us? Friends, these are very real and current issues that we face. Now, in this year, our directions are discipleship in the family. And it is crucial that we look at sex and sexuality because it deepens. It deepens our faith and it helps us understand how it impacts the family. In fact, the fundamental basis for understanding this topic is to go back to God's design from His Word. Now, in preparation for this message, I've been blessed and I've benefited from the views expressed by my fellow pastor, Reverend Aaron Tay from Badok Methodist Church. And he preached a similar message last year. Here's a starting point. God's design is that sex and sexuality may be holy and set apart for Him. We call it holy sexuality. And the fundamental basis is to go back to God's Word in Genesis chapter 1. And allow me to read God's Word for us. Then God said, Let us make humans in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the catfish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. The first part of God's design, God's design for sex and sexuality is sexuality as male and female. Because both male and female represent the image of God. God created two sexes, male and female. And male and female together, we reflect the image of God. 
How do we do that, you may ask? In the way we relate to God. God is not bound by a physical being, physical description. God is spiritual in nature and therefore we relate to God. That's how we are made in His image. In the way our bodies are structured and created, in the way we have emotional and spiritual capacities, we all reflect the image of God. And so here's the point. Being male and female contributes together to this understanding of the image of God. Andrew Walker, in his essay on gender and sexuality by the Gospel Coalition, he writes, Male and female, according to the biblical portrait, are fixed bodily realities, meaning they are not interchangeable or eradicable. They are objectively known, such that the identity of who we are as sexed humans is not a mystery. Lastly, male and female imply substantive differentiation. Now, this differentiation is observed down to the chromosomal, the anatomical, the reproductive, the physiological, and the emotive levels. What does that mean? That means that men and women, we are very different at the deepest levels of our being. Our chromosomes are different. XY for male and XX for female. So at the genetic level, God has designed the male and the female. Our bodies are designed very differently. And Andrew Walker writes, This physical difference starkly manifests itself in the anatomical design of male and female, which makes procreation possible and the fulfillment of the cultural mandate actionable. What is the cultural mandate? It's to be fruitful and to increase in number. And so whether animals, birds or plants and humans, there are two sexes. God created two sexes so he can fill the earth with his creation. And so there is a distinction between male and female as part of God's design and implemented by God as the creator. And so here's the point, my friends. God made male and female fundamentally very different. Therefore, gender is not meant to be interchangeable. We have to accept that we are created different and gender is not meant to be freely fluid. Therefore, the idea that a man could ever completely change to become a woman or vice versa is something I believe out of God's design. Let's move on to the second part of God's design that comes to Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God made every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept And he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For out of man, this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife. And they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Part two of God's design for sex and sexuality. 
is that sex is a gift from God in marriage between a man and a woman, between husband and wife. Genesis 2.24 makes it very clear. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. My friends, one flesh here refers to more than just a sexual and physical union, because sex is more than just a physical act. Sex is a union with a deep connectedness of intimacy, more than just physical, but spiritual, because woman was made out of man, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and now one flesh. Man and woman together in marriage are meant to complement each other in a union that God designs. In fact, marriage is the expression of the spiritual union between Christ and His church. Ephesians 5 makes it very clear that Christ is the bridegroom and church, our church, we as the church, is His bride. The union of husband and wife loving and serving each other in all areas of life is like a foretaste of the eternal union of God between God and His people when Jesus Christ returns. So here's the point, my friends. Sexual intimacy is to be expressed and enjoyed within the covenantal framework of marriage. Because sexual intercourse is a sacred experience when it's accompanied by the love and fidelity of marriage between a man and a woman. Because ultimately, sex is mutual giving to one another in marriage. Body, emotions, and pleasure. Timothy Keller puts it right. He says that sex is God's way for you to give yourself to someone else so deeply in marriage that it results in personal transformation and completion. And therefore, the holy design of God is that sex is to be between husband and wife in marriage. And therefore, sex outside marriage is contrary to his design and to his will. And by that, I mean that there will be two paths. The first path is to be married and faithful. The second path is to be single and chaste. Now, we think that faithfulness in marriage is simply not to commit adultery. My friends, there's more to that. Faithfulness in marriage is the idea of covenantal commitment. You know, if you and I are married, what we are called to be is to be sexually and emotionally faithful to each other. The latter is very, very important. Emotionally faithful. That means that we will intentionally flee from lustful desires for others. Which means that in a marriage, there are healthy boundaries that men and women, husband and wife, will keep with their friends and their colleagues. Healthy boundaries with friends of the opposite gender to avoid falling into temptation and lust. What about idea of singleness and being chaste? This idea of being single and chaste is the idea of being pure and fleeing from temptation. The idea of chastity is not just abstention from premarital sex. My friends, it's more than that. It's this idea that you will remain sexually pure. And so you will flee from anything that rouses sexual temptation. Example, pornography. Example, intimate petting between dating couples. It happens all the time. And in these two parts, the issue is not just what we do with our bodies. God is concerned with what we do with our imagination. Because to lust after someone is already to have committed adultery. Matthew 5 makes it very clear. So my friends... 
This part of God's design, where sex is to be part of marriage, brings us to these two parts. If you are married, stay truly faithful. If you are single, stay pure and chaste. But I want to say, my friends, that marriage is not the biblical goal of our faith. It is not. Discipleship is. And so whether you are single or married, knowing Jesus and becoming like Jesus, following Jesus as his disciple is the goal. Marriage is a gift for some of us. Not all of us will have it. But if we are married, then ultimately marriage is a discipleship journey that you take without Lord. But whatever it may be, whether single or married, our first calling is to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? Because, my friends, marriage is not eternal. Marriage is not eternal. One day when we get up to be with our Lord eternally, there will be no husbands and wives. But there will be brothers and sisters in Christ. In the Word of God, the emphasis and priority is always the family of God. For all who put their faith in Christ and believe in His name, God has given us the grace and the right to be called His children. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus declares that He would thus she who does the will of my father is regarded as my brother and sister. So my friends, you are no less if you are single. You are no less. And you are no more if you are married. In fact, all of us are called to pursue discipleship as the first priority. And we are made whole not because we are married. We are made whole because of the family of God we belong to. This is the community of faith that we have where we can nourish spiritual companionship, friendships, and authentic relationship. And so, my friends, what then is God's holy design for sex and sexuality? Sexuality as male and female. Sex within the context of marriage. And this holy design is very good. Turn to your neighbor and say, very good. Very good. It's very, very good. Genesis 1.31 declares that God saw everything he has made, including men and women. And he says it is very good. But what happened, my friends? Sin. Sin has distorted God's design. In fact, sex and sexuality have been distorted through sin because of what we call a self-centered desire. Sin has brought sex and sexuality away from design to desire. That's the fundamental issue of sin for sex and sexuality today. And this distortion is especially clear in today's culture because the approach towards sex and sexuality is about my desire, what I want, instead of recognizing the design of the Creator. We see this in the prevailing worldview about sex because today, whether it is mass or social media, music, education, you name it, sex is normalized as an enjoyment of the flesh. That means I am entitled to sex when I desire it. When I feel like it, when I want it, I can and I should be able to do it. So sex is like an appetite, right? Just like your thirst and hunger that needs to be satisfied. That's what pornography does. Pornography turns persons into objects for self-desire and gratification. And for pornography, sex has been reduced to an appetite-satisfying act with no responsibility, no mutual love and consideration. The current worldview is that sex is no big deal. 
It's only temporary. It's only physical because it satisfies an appetite. And so long as the other party consents, it doesn't matter who you sleep with. And that is why premarital sex is regarded as normal. Now, even same-sex enjoyment, homosexual acts, are normalized and celebrated. And we know that this is the current situation of the LGBTQ. Global companies are endorsing it. For example, we see pro-LGBTQ content on Netflix. Today, in fact, many more are open and favoring same-sex relationships. Now, Ipsos did a survey last year. Based on the responses of 500 persons they interviewed, 45% of 500 surveyed said that they are more accepting of same-sex relationships than they were three years ago. And especially among young adults, aged 18 to 29, 67% of them indicated greater acceptance now than compared to three years ago. So what do we see, my friends? We see a worldwide movement towards endorsing sex, same-sex, heterosexual, as being normal, as being done anytime, because it is about your personal desire. What do we see in the prevailing worldview? We see today the idea of gender being fluid, where how you feel and maybe your psychology will tell you the sex or gender that you should be, or the gender that you feel like being. So today there is a fluidity of gender, and that is increasingly celebrated today. And persons in some other countries can choose whatever pronouns you want to be addressed by. You can be a he today and a she tomorrow, or you can be non-binary, which means neither male nor female. You're not sure. And so my friends, this is the current prevailing worldview because of the distortion of sin. How then do we respond? How then do we respond? Our discipleship in the face of dominant culture. Our discipleship in the face of dominant culture. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 says there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, throughout history, sin has elevated sex and sexuality to a matter of individual desire instead of the creator's design. You know, at the time of Paul, Greco-Roman culture was a very central one. There were all kinds of sexual activity. Licentiousness was being promoted, was being celebrated. So for example, pederasty. Pederasty is sex between a man and a boy. During the time, the Roman times, pederasty was institutionalized. Pederasty was considered a cultural ideal where boys would be groomed for the purpose of sexual enjoyment. And that is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 to 27, he says that there are all kinds of depravity and shameful lusts that were being committed in his time. And he calls the church to a countercultural response. And so in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, he says, in view of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in view of the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in view of what Christ has done for us, we are to offer our bodies. We are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Paul says, this is your countercultural response. Do not be conformed anymore to the patterns of the world, the culture of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is our discipleship. It's our choice. It's a grace-empowered choice to follow God's word, to follow God's design, and not give in to dominant culture. My friends, 
you and I can pursue holy spirituality because our desires don't define us. Instead, the gospel transforms us. You know, Dan Patterson, in his article, Why Does God Care About My Sex Life? He writes, I don't know how I can trust the cultural story on sex that's been sold to us. However, I do trust Jesus. I have found him to be nothing but good news, instilling sex with a sacred purpose, extending a dignity to the role of our sexual feelings without idolizing them, and inviting us to discipline our desires in service to a bigger story. Jesus has not come to do harm to our sexuality. He has come to help us restore it to God's good design. Amen. The gospel brings us back to holy sexuality. Where our sexual designs, our relationships, our sexuality can be shaped by the power of the gospel. In this regard, let me commend this book by Christopher Yuan to you. It's a wonderful book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. It talks about how the gospel can transform our sexual desire, our relationships, the way we view sexuality for the glory of God. Let me close this sermon with some application. Because we, we know all that perhaps I've already said thus far. We see it in the world today. We know we have to be disciples, but what then do we actually do? Number one, can you pray like never before? Can you please pray like never before? When was the last time I asked myself that I went on my knees and prayed for the sexual priority of the next generation? When was the last time I went on my knees and I prayed for my children and my grandchildren that they will be sexually pure, that they will not have sex before marriage? My friends, we need to pray because these are very challenging times. The whole battle for purity is concerned. And this battle has to be undergirded with prayer. We must pray like never before that as God's people, our next generation will pursue holy sexuality and they will follow God's design. Amen? Surveys have found that for the next generation, what we call the Generation Z, spirituality don't really matter to a lot of them. But we must pray that God will convict their hearts. And especially those who are struggling with sexual sin, they will encounter the power of Lord Jesus Christ to turn away and make godly choices for holy sexuality. That's the first thing we must do to pray. Number two, we need to renew our convictions. Many Christians have already given in to dominant culture. They will tell you that premarital sex is all right. They may even tell you that extramarital sex is okay. It's not, my friends. And today, will we, will we all allow God's word to form the convictions that we have through the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus? Today, my friends, if you are living in sexual sin, then would you allow God's word to convict your heart as you seek His grace to sin no more? And for some of us today, if you want to pursue purity, then you need the accountability of a group of spiritual friends to help you keep to the convictions that you have. Number three, you need to teach the next generation. We need to teach our children, our youth, about the biblical view, God's design of sex and sexuality. Please, my friends, don't just depend on the church to do that. As parents, as grandparents, you can own this aspect of your children's discipleship because you teach them the way 
they should go. They have to make their own choices, but you can teach them the way they should go. Disciple our children early, and there are wonderful good resources out there. For example, Focus on a Family, which we partner for ministry, can help you get started. The Focus on the Family in Singapore, if you Google, they've got great and good resources, short videos to help you get into conversations about sex and sexuality with your children. These videos will talk about why pornography is harmful. These videos will talk about how you can treat members of the opposite gender with respect and with honour. These are the fundamental pillars by which our children, our grandchildren, need to be discipled in. Can I also say that it's not easy to have a conversation about sex and sexuality with your children or grandchildren if there is no intentional culture on other aspects of discipleship. Our next generation, our next gen, they have to learn and encounter the Creator God. Amen? It starts from there. They have to encounter His goodness. They have to know His faithfulness. And then out of that, they will understand His wonderful design. That's what intentional discipleship. And it doesn't happen overnight. But it's worth getting started in small ways. Let me encourage you to sign up for the upcoming midweek teaching series on family worship and discipleship. The teacher, Mr. David Leong, is a very experienced, very engaging educator in this area. So please sign up and discover for yourselves how you can bring family devotion and discipleship to a new level, even as we seek to teach our children. Fourthly, and this is an important one, remember this, my friends, empathize, don't marginalize. I'm inspired by Jesus because Jesus ate and drank with the sinners and tax collectors. Mark 2.15 tells us that he sat down with them. He had a meal with them. Now, to eat and drink in those days was essentially to extend hospitality, to extend welcome, to extend friendship. So Jesus did not marginalize them, but neither did he condone their behavior. The tax collectors and sinners of Jesus' time, now they were amazed that Jesus should avail his presence to them when many around them would not have anything to do with the sinners or tax collectors. But remember this, not all of them followed Jesus. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, did. But many did not follow Jesus, but Jesus did not condemn. In fact, he said, let the one with no sin cast the first stone. But he also said to the woman in sin, go and sin no more. So empathy doesn't mean we condone, doesn't mean we compromise. But what empathy really does is that it creates a safe space for authentic journeying. I'll be very honest with you. There are Christians who struggle with sexual sin. There are Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction. There are Christians who struggle with transgender desire. They don't understand why this has to happen to them. They don't understand why God has to make them feel this way. And it, 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 perhaps they feel that it's God's fault. And they wrestle with the goodness of God. They wrestle with the desires they have. And the issue for you and I is whether we will go to them and say, why are you like that? Or why can't you be someone like that? The issue is whether we will go to them and say, let me hear your story. Let me do my best to listen to what you go through. That I may pray for you. That I may journey with you. Because my friends, when we create a safe space for them to be vulnerable with us, 
we can then begin to help them take that journey of holy sexuality. But when we judge them, when we have nothing to do with them, then what we are doing is we are effectively abandoning them to dominant culture. We are doing that. We are casting them aside and said, I have nothing to do with you as a Christian. Where else can they go? They will go to the world. They will go to the world. The three L's are instructive. How do you empathize? You listen, you learn, and you love. Listen not to convert, not to change. Listen to appreciate the struggles and to know how to pray. Learn so that you can discern fact from falsehood. And finally, love so as to care and to journey with someone who's struggling. True story. I recall a young adult struggling with same-sex attraction. He struggled to tell his parents. His parents are God-loving Christians who serve in the church. He struggled to tell his parents. Eventually, he did. Were his parents disappointed? Yes, they were devastated. Did he not struggle with letting his parents down? Yes, he struggled. He felt that he was a disappointment to the family. But here's the point. When he eventually told his parents, it was the non-judgmental posture of his parents, their willingness to listen, their willingness to love him despite all that he was going through. That helped this gentleman walk the road of holiness. Now, he has not overcome the same-sex attraction. And often, and can I also be honest, there are times when we will not be able to overcome, but instead, we can remain holy in our daily battles. That's the difference. We do not understand why some people have to go through this, but they can make that godly choice to remain holy every day in their thoughts, in their imagination, in their conduct. This family recognizes the need for God's grace to come upon them now as parents journey with their same-sex attraction son. Today, my friends, true empathy is to recognize that we are all equally fallen and we are in need of God's redemption. Safe space for people wrestling with same-sex attraction is to admit that your sin is not greater than my sin. That I too, I too struggle with sexual temptation. And together, we can help one another stay holy and pursue holy sexuality. Finally, my friends, with this hour close, to rest in the goodness of the Creator. Focus on helping one another discover God's goodness. God's character. Because can I be very honest with you? The LGBTQ issue today is not about morality. And for many of us, we may have bucked up the wrong tree. We go to our children and grandchildren and say, you got to do this because the Bible tells you so. It's a moral issue. You cannot be like that. But for many of our young people, it is a justice issue. It is not a morality issue. Because for them, they will ask, how can a just God discriminate against the LGBTQ? How can this be fair? A just God can be fair when the heterosexual can be satisfied in marriage and the LGBTQ cannot. How can a just God allow someone to struggle with his sexual identity? How can this God be just 
How can this God be fair? That is the issue at hand. And recent findings have reiterated that the young, they are pro-LGBTQ, not because they are LGBTQ themselves. No, they are upset by the lack of justice for their friends. They are upset by the lack of fairness for those who wrestle with same-sex attraction. And therefore, my friends, we must return to a fresh discovery of who our Creator God is. It's only when you encounter God yourself for His goodness that this is the God who gave His Son for us. What kind of justice is that? What kind of justice is that God should hang Himself on the cross? What kind of countercultural expression of justice, of divine justice, where we don't deserve grace and mercy, and yet God loved Himself so much for us? That's the just God we have. And when you go back to this goodness, this justice of God, then you recognize that this just God has a good design for sex and sexuality. You can trust Him. You can trust this God for His design. You may not fully understand, especially in the world that we have today, you will not understand, but you can have faith in this almighty God and His design for sex and sexuality. My friends, we need to rest in the Creator. Trust is just and good ways. And as I close, let us arise. This year, the directions of discipleship in the family, I pray that we will start a movement of purity, a movement of purity in our families, a movement of purity in our church family, where we will help the next generation. We'll help one another seek God and find God. We will be the catalyst to help them discover a personal relationship for themselves with God so that they can make their own choices to follow God's design. And one day, when we meet our Lord Jesus Christ face to face, He will say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been pure, and you have pursued my design, and not your desire. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? Open our hearts to receive an insight from your word. Father, we repent of our casual attitude towards sex. We repent of our sexual sin. Pray especially for your healing come to those who have been wounded by sexual sin. Especially sexual infidelity in marriage. They've caused many marriages to be broken. Holy Spirit, would you heal and comfort with your love? Father, we say a prayer for those who are Christian and yet they wrestle with same-sex attraction. They're confused about their sexual identity. They wrestle with transgender desires. Lord, we do not know why they have to go through this. Father, I pray you'll be so close to them. Help them encounter your love. Give them grace to pursue you and choose holiness. Above all, Father, I pray for all of us that we may stay pure, that we may honor your design for sexuality that we may ever 
always trust in your goodness. Hear our prayers, O Lord. For we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.